You know, I, I'm going to take some liberty here right now. Um, I mean, there's people up here. I mean, Nate today and everyone up here, like you guys feel a great responsibility to just kind of be priest-like and, and lead us into the presence of God. Um, a lot of times, though, that happens because we're a kingdom of priests, even through people out here. And this guy right here, Brad, you know, Brad, you, you don't have to talk right now, but he, coming out of a car accident where he shouldn't have had his life spared, through that, just fell in love with Jesus. And if you ever just see Brad here on a Sunday morning, um, what you get to see is someone that just loves the Lord. I will. <laughs> next time, next week, all right? <laughs> Brad, thank you, man, brother. <laughs> Love you, man. All right, um, we're returning to John's Gospel. Oh, and welcome to Crossroads, by the way. Uh, good to see everybody. Is our sun still shining today or not? Good. So much to look forward to this afternoon. Starting to wonder this week if, if, if the sun is still there. It is. I'm glad it is. Um, so yeah, we finished this series on the Holy Spirit, and if some of you are just kind of thinking, wow, um, they didn't really cover it all. Um, that's because the second half of John's Gospel, one of the major themes is the Holy Spirit. And so we will continue to uh, live in that um, as we journey through John's Gospel. Today, we're going back to John. Let's turn to John 7. And one of the things we like to do for the very words of God is, is stand, if that's something that you can do, whether you're here or in your home. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm actually going to, for context's sake, go back to chapter 6, starting with verse 66. From this time, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through one of the twelve was later to betray him. Just a little foreshadowing there. Now verse chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify to what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not going up to this feast because for me, my time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, it's almost like Jesus didn't want to go with them. He wanted to go by himself. No, I'm kidding. 
Um, Jesus went, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him. They were asking, where is that man? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything public about him for fear of the Jews. But not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. This is God's word. For now, you can be seated. Okay, I feel like we just need to do just a little review. This book that we're in is oftentimes called a gospel. The gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then this one, John. They're called gospels because each of them provide an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think anyone who's read the Gospels also knows that John's Gospel, compared to the other three Gospels, is the most unique. John provides a lot of material and stories and events in the life of Jesus that are not in the other three Gospels. Now let's remember who's writing this. John is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's someone who is with Jesus 24-7, 365 for over three years. You could probably even make the argument that he had the closest seat to Jesus of anyone. He's also writing his gospel last, so he doesn't feel this need to have to provide this comprehensive play-by-play account of Jesus' life because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already done that. So John writing last will instead strategically pick a few of those key stories, those key events in the life of Christ, and then he's going to just slow the narrative down. He's going to zoom in so we can see these events in great detail and have a complete understanding of Jesus. Now, one of the things that John does, the the key events that he dials into that are not so often in the other Gospels are Jesus' trips to Jerusalem. And a lot of times we don't think about place when we study the Bible, but I don't know if you know this, so little of Jesus' life and ministry occur in Jerusalem. Most of it occurred in Galilee. And, you know, because most of you haven't been there, none of this really means much to you. But let me just at least show you a map. Um, Here's a map during the first century. And down there you can see Jerusalem in this province of Judea. Judea and the province above it, Samaria, are run by Rome by a person named Pontius Pilate. Um, Galilee, just above it, is an area run for Rome, but by... Herod, one of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas. Galilee is where Jesus lives, where his hometown, Capernaum, Nazareth, where he was raised, his home, his ministry headquarters, Capernaum, are. And uh, when I studied at Jerusalem University College, so much of my learning was was right on site. And I remember uh, sitting on this hill our bell and my right right here um, now I have groups hike all the way up to this spot 
But I'm looking out, and there's the Sea of Galilee, and that's the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I remember sitting there, and the professor pointing out Capernaum, which is right there on that northern shore, which is the headquarters of, of Jesus' ministry. Um, that's in the Gospels. And he said 90% of Jesus' ministry occurred in what you're looking at right now. That just blew me away. Then he said 75% of Jesus' teaching took place in that space. The feeding of the 5,000 happened in that space. The walking on water happened. Uh, that part of the lake, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the calling of the disciples, it all is happening up here in Galilee. Um, and that's what the other three Gospels are, are about. But then you have to ask, why does John spend so much time highlighting Jesus' trips to Jerusalem? Well, the temple is there, and the temple is the centerpiece of Judaism. It's the centerpiece of, of this Jewish identity and, and a Jew's relationship to God. Uh, Jerusalem is also the place where all the major holidays are celebrated. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And, and for these holidays, Jews, not even just from uh, Israel itself, but from all over the world, would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Jesus himself is a Jew, so he too is making these pilgrimages. And here's what John knows. John knows that God did not provide these holidays just as an end to itself but so that we could know Jesus through the holidays. Just like God gave a temple and priests with sacrifices, so that we could know Jesus through the temple, through the priests, through the sacrifices. See, this is what John wants to do. He wants to show us Jesus through the lens of Scripture, that Jesus is the one who Moses talked about, that Jesus is the Torah of God made flesh. That he's the new exodus, the one who sets us free from slavery. He's the true temple. He's this walking temple. He's this once and for all sacrifice. He's the high priest that washes us up and cleanses us of all shame and guilt. He's the true Sabbath. He's the true rest for our souls. He's the true Passover, namely the Passover lamb who redeems us. And now we come to this part of John, and it's about the Feast of Tabernacles. Because John wants us to see Jesus through this feast. And he's going to slow the narrative down. The next four chapters, John 7 to 10, essentially take place within this eight-day period around the Feast of Tabernacles. So our text starts with just this, after this. After this, after what? Well, after arguably what is Jesus' most stunning miracle on the northern shore of Galilee, every gospel includes it, the feeding of 5,000. Now remember, in John's gospel, these miracles are more than supernatural acts. John calls these miracles signs because a sign is a miracle. Um, it's, it's, it's like a real-life parable through the miracle itself that teaches us about Jesus. 
And this, the, the crowd that day, when Jesus performed the, the miracle, didn't just see the miracle, but they caught the sign. That's why they say, just as Moses gave us manna in the desert. And, and if, if you know the Jewish tradition, even at that time, they, they had this belief that there was this box up in heaven that stored the food for all the angels. But when Moses prayed, this, this box was opened and angel food itself was rained down on earth. And this went on for 40 years every single night. And this is what they see, the miracle of the, of, of the 5,000. They see it through this lens. And that's why they say one as great as Moses is, again, opening up the, the heavens and opening up that box. And angel food is coming down to feed us. And this is why they want to make Jesus king. But what Jesus knows, because it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them, he knows the kind of king that they want. And therefore, he drops his most offensive teaching there, um, he calls out to the crowd, and he basically says, you don't want me. You just want your stomachs filled with delicious food. And then he tells them, what's so tragic about this, I am the delicious thing that your souls have been made to eat, and I have come to the world that you may eat and drink of me and have the life that you're seeking, life to the fullest, eternal life. And you know how the crowd responded? They just canceled them out. They all turned away, causing Jesus to look at his disciples are you guys going to turn from me too? And that's when Peter stands up and boldly declares, Jesus, where should we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And then he says, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. When I read that, my heart just says, yes. And even more so when I understand the context in which Peter is, is, is saying this, because the Galileans have just rejected Jesus. You keep reading, and the Judeans want to kill him. You keep reading, and Jesus' own brothers, he had four of them, one of which is James, other Jude, both wrote books in our New Testament, who are going to become leaders uh, in the church, but at this point, they don't believe in him. Do you see what's going on? I mean, John tells us in the intro these words. In John chapter 1, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, just stop and think about those words. The world was made through Jesus. The world did not recognize him. Jesus came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. And you know how Jesus puts it? Look at verse 7 of our text. He says to his brothers, he says, you know, the world doesn't hate you. In essence, because you still belong to the world. But he says, the world hates me. The world hates me. And I don't, I don't know how we've gotten this in our mind that... 
Somehow I think many Christians think that, that the world universally accepts and likes Jesus. Does it? Now here's where I want to talk about world, because world, too, is a strong theme in John's gospel. John uses world as a technical term. And in, in the original language, uh, it's the Greek word cosmos. For instance, in John 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only begotten Son. And so you ask yourself, well, what does world mean here? And in that text, the, world, the, the word world means the people of the world. All the people of the cosmos, for God so love, loves the world. But then later in John, because John keeps these themes um, alive even in his letters in, in, in 1 John verse 2, verse 15, he writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. And, and it's like, wait a second, uh, John 3 verse 16 says, for God so loves the world, but now we come to this, and, and John tells us to not love the world or the things in the world. Uh, that is because now the, this word world doesn't mean the people of the world, but it means the world's system. Its values. Its beliefs. Its way of life. It's what we might call worldliness. Which is what John then describes in, in the next verses. He says, if anyone loves the world or, or worldliness, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world or all that is worldly, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And here John is clearly talking about the world system or this worldly force that's driven by this unbridled lust and human pride. And I read this, and now, now I start to ask myself important questions. Who do I belong to? Do I belong to Jesus, or do I belong to the world? What am I seeking? Am I seeking Jesus and his kingdom, or am I seeking the world and its values, its beliefs? And see, Jesus, uh, later in John's gospel, we'll get to this, but he will combine both meanings of of the word world when he says be in the world but not of the world. So he says be in the world and, and, and there he's talking about the people of the world because we are to immerse ourselves in the people of this world. We live uh, to serve the people of this world. So we are to be in the world but not of the world and now that not of the world means the world system, its values, its beliefs, worldliness which is essentially living as if the world is all there is. So this brief intro into John's use of the word world, um, now we come to verse 7, and Jesus says, The world hates me. And that makes me ask, what, what meaning here? Is, is it the people of the world, or is it the world system that hates Jesus? And in my opinion, it's both. It is the world system. The world system is entirely opposed to Jesus. It's contrary. It's, 
It's so opposed to all that Jesus is, to Jesus' life, the path that he walks, how Jesus lives, what Jesus values. And we even see this uh, with Jesus' brothers who do not believe yet and are still worldly. And this is what they say to Jesus. This is a very worldly statement. Go show yourself, in verse 4, to the world. In fact, I think you could argue that this is our world in a nutshell. Go show yourself to the world. Go market yourself. Yeah, you had a bad little thing happen to you in Galilee, but man, there is a big stage waiting for you in Jerusalem where thousands of Jews from all over the world will be gathered. Like, go show yourself. Go market yourself. Go make a name for yourself. And that's not just the world's game right now. I mean, this game goes all the way back to the beginning. If you remember Babel, where all humanity is coming together and saying, let's build a tower to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. You know what that tower they're building is? It's a tower of human pride. Hey, look at me. Look what we can do. Look what we can accomplish. And I think our whole world system is predicated on this game. Everybody trying to make a name for themselves. This game of trying to impress people, of living to be noticed, of showing off whether it be a talent that we have or our connections, how many followers we have, how many likes we can get. Showing off our accomplishments the power that we wield, the stuff that we own. It's the world. So it drives the world. It's this lust for praise, for celebrity, for status. And I like how Shakespeare said it. The whole world is a stage. And we are its actors. Where day after day, we must perform, we must play the part, we must show off <laughs> to the world who we are and what we have. You know what the Bible's term for this is? Babel. Babel is when we live to make a name for ourselves. And the Bible says that Babel is the most anti-God, anti-Christ thing there is. Because this is what Babel is at its heart. It's about the death of God. So that I can be exalted. You can be exalted. Look around. This is our world. And people just almost thoughtlessly just sell their soul to Babel. They sell their body. They sell their life. Why? Because Babel does promise you a name. But listen, to get that name, you will become its slave. You'll be a slave to its lust, its game. You'll become a slave to performance, to measuring up, to acting the part. And most of all, you'll become a slave to yourself. You'll be so stuck inside of yourself. And now we're talking about pride. And pride is human misery at its worst. And in all this, 
Here stands Jesus. I mean, Jesus is, is the epitome, literally, of, of, of God's heart. And, and, and think about God's heart. In, in the first words that he says to Abraham to set his whole plan uh, to redeem a world in motion with these words, Abraham, I am going to bless you. And that word for bless in Hebrew is literally the word barak. It means to bend the knee. It's this idea of making yourself as small as you can to make someone else so great. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to bend the knee to you. I'm going to make myself small to make you great, Abraham, to make your name great. And we see the heart of God in Jesus. God become flesh. Just think about the humility in that. And then listen to what Jesus says to his brothers two times. And this is a phrase, too, that's used often in John's gospel. My time has not yet come, or my hour is not yet. And, and, and you're left wondering every time Jesus says this, what's he talking about? My time, my hour. Uh, what's this a reference to? Well, it's, it, it's referencing the hour, the time of Jesus' glory, when Jesus finally makes it to the big stage. And you know what that big stage is? His hour of glory is a cross. Because that's God. That's God's heart. That's his way. What's your way? What's our way? Are we caught up in the world's way, in the world's system, in the world's game, in worldliness, in Babel? Do we have this insatiable need to be noticed? Do we live for the praise of others to impress people? with our talents, our knowledge, our personality, our, our status, or do we live for the audience of one? Because that's Jesus over and over again. What he says is, I am here to do my Father's will. And last week, Brian Robinson uh, talked about who we are, how we are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then he concluded it by saying, we are a people who follow in the steps of Jesus. In other words, we are to walk as Jesus walked. We are to live as Jesus walked, lived. Um, our lives are to look like Jesus and look at him. Look at him. I mean, you look at Jesus' whole life from the time he's born to the time that he, 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 he hangs on a cross. His whole life makes a mockery of, of our world's game. It's in absolutely every facet, starting with his birth. Not born in a palace, but born in a stinking cave. And as he grows up, he, he doesn't grow up in, in, in a home of, of elites and kings and princesses, but instead, poor parents who are too poor to even pay the normal sacrifice on the day he's dedicated. In his life and ministry, he's not surrounded by, by the elite people of his day, but he's surrounded by the broken and sinners and the outcast. And he even says, the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. And 
really, it's in, it's in light of all this and, and, and the call for us to walk in his steps that I say, how dare we play the world's game? Where we live to impress people, where we live for the praise of others, for likes and followers. As Christ followers, we are set free from battle. We are set free from the stage. We are set free from needing the spotlight. And when God gives us a platform, because he will give every single one of us a platform, because he wants to partner with us to change the world, any platform that we have is for our personal demonstration of weakness and for the demonstration of Christ's power, period. I told the elders this week, my, 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 the verse that has become my theme verse for my calling as a pastor, it's 2 Corinthians 12. And if you know anything about uh, the church in Corinth, I mean, this church is the epitome of, of a church that's infected with the world's game. And they want Paul, too, to be infected with this. I mean, they want to know that Paul is a celebrity and that he has status and that he's a super apostle and, and one of the greats. And Paul finally, at the end of the second letter in chapter 12, says, listen, do you want me to boast? Okay. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited, God put a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord, God, would you please take this away? But God said to me, my grace, Paul, is sufficient in weakness and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, okay, you want me to boast? This is what I boast in. I will boast in my weakness because when I am weak and I put my weakness on display, it is a demonstration of Christ's power. And there is so much at stake right now. Our witness to the world is at stake. I mean, how badly do we want to be like Jesus? And this is where I just say, God, search our hearts. And God, see if, if, if this insidious sin of babble and striving to make a name for myself is in me. And God, would you reveal it? Would you expose it? Would you remove it? Would you cut it out? God, make us like Jesus. So not only does the world, its system, hate Jesus, but so do the people of the world. Look at verses 10 to 13. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, he being Jesus. So now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowd, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So it's interesting. Jesus finally now goes to this feast Verse 11 says that they are all looking for Jesus. Where is this man? 
I mean, just think about this. Jesus has become the, become the talk of this whole feast. Now, this is in part because of the last feast that Jesus attended, um, probably also the Feast of Tabernacles a year earlier. Uh, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. And not only did Jesus heal this man, but he told this man to pick up his mat, which to us is no big deal. Uh, but it was the Sabbath in which Jesus told him to pick up his mat. And they were forbidden from carrying anything on the Sabbath. So here is this man walking around the temple. And it's, it's literally like he's walking around the temple or in the grocery store and not wearing a mask. Okay? And y- y- you can imagine just this situation even being on steroids compared to some of our realities today. The temple police confront him and the man just throws Jesus under the bus and he kind of says, yeah, it was Jesus. The guy healed me and then he told me I had to carry my mat, so I'm carrying my mat. I'm not wearing a mask. Now the conflict. Massive collision taking place. Between who? Well, when you read our text, we make this between Jesus and the Jews. And I thought, my goodness, the NIV finally got it right. Because last night I was looking at the NIV. I don't know what NIV I had last night and what NIV I have today because they're both different. Maybe it's, this is just the large letter edition and I don't know. But in verse 1, when it talks about the Jews who are waiting to take Jesus' life... My NIV last night said the Jewish leaders. Same in verse 11. Now at the feast of the Jews, they were watching for him and asking, where is that man? My text last night said Jewish leaders. Verse 13, where it says, but no one would say anything publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. It said just leaders. And then in verse 15, it says the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning about having studied? Does anyone have a Bible that tracks that way? Because the NIV that I have, which is like all the other translations, it really says Jews in verse 1, Jews in verse 11, Jews in verse 13, and Jews in verse 15. The word in the original language, the Greek word, eudeos. Now, first of all, this is even a bit stunning to me. That we have a, translated the word eudeos as Jew. That would be the equivalent of translating the word Japanese as Jap or Japs. Now I got your attention. But even more than this, Judeos means Judean. It's a Judean Jew as opposed to a Galilean Jew or a Hellenistic Jew. Look at verse 13. It says, no one, those are all Jews, could speak openly about Jesus because of the Jews. No, because of the Judeans. And Judeans are not all the Jews because Jesus is a Jew. He's a Galilean Jew. The disciples are Jews. Most of them are Galilean Jews, but some of them are also Judean Jews. Everyone at the feast is a Jew. 
So Judeos means those Jews in Jerusalem who are in power, who run the temple, who comprise the Jewish Supreme Court, who are the thought police, the speech police. They're the ones that police the mat carrying, the mask wearing, all of that. This is important clarification. I'll tell you why. Because this misunderstanding of it being all Jews is what has led to Christians persecuting the Jews throughout history, hating the Jews throughout history, and even a holocaust. Jesus versus mainly the Jews who are in power. And Jesus refuses to play by their rules. Look at verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. He goes right under their nose. And he boldly teaches. And I want you to know the, the, the volatile place that Jesus is entering, not only is this a feast where Josephus tells us about a million people descend upon Jerusalem and they're all packed in there, but there's so much political tension that's going on and Jesus just enters that space and he has total control of the crowd. Look at verses 25 and 26, which we didn't read. But it says at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they are trying to kill? But yet here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded maybe that he is the Christ? And all this culminates in verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him. That's the temple police, but no one laid a hand on him because Jesus is in total control. Here's what I want us to see. People want to kill him. Not just cancel him out. Because the world hates Jesus. And the world still hates Jesus. Don't think that the world hates the church, but accepts Jesus. No, the world, its people, not all of them, just like in our story, and its system hates them. And why? Jesus is a threat. He always has been, he always will be, because he confronts the wrong ways that we live, the wrong beliefs that we have, the wrong ways that we use power, the wrong ways that we treat people. I mean, think about that lame man who's paralyzed for 38 years and Jesus heals him. Or like, yes, Jesus, bring that healing in my life. But the next time Jesus sees him, he says, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. He's a threat. Think about that lawyer 
They're talking over theological matters, and Jesus affirms him and says, man, your theology is right on. But then he next says to him, he says, now go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He's a threat. Or how about when he stands with that prostitute in the face of this prostitute's accusers, Jesus has zero condemnation for her. But then he looks at her and says, go and leave your life of prostitution. He's a threat. He's a threat to, to so much that we hold dear to our comfort, our, our, our way of life, the, the things that we value. And why is he a threat? It's not because he wants to hurt us. He actually wants to help us. But even more than this, more than what he says, even more than what he does, Peter is right on. When Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Holy One of God. This is why he's a threat. It's because Jesus doesn't just teach holiness. He doesn't just walk holiness. He is holy. Now, Rudolf Otto, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, in his, his, in his magnus opus work called The Idea of the Holy, communicates this amazing idea. He says, anytime we encounter another living entity that is so beyond us, that is so extraordinary, that is so awesome... He says, we, it, it, it's very normal to have this schizophrenic response to that, that we're, where we're both pushed back and yet drawn towards that at the same time. And I think we experience this on a small scale with people that we might think of in terms of extraordinary, who, who might be so beyond us in, in terms of beauty or, or charisma or talent and, and in one sense we're so attracted to them and drawn to them but then at the same time we recoil and we're threatened by them now multiply all of that by a million times with God because he is holy 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 he is so awesome he is so beyond us that when we truly encounter him we are so captivated we are so drawn in to who he is. But at the same time, we're saying, woe is me. Get away from me. And this is how people respond to Jesus. It's in our text. Everybody's looking for him. Where is he? They're drawn to him. But at the same time, they want to kill him. Think about Peter. The first time he encounters Jesus, and it's a true encounter because he says to him, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He's recoiling. But then later, think about Peter just recklessly running towards Jesus or getting out of his boat and swimming with all his might towards him. Jesus is the Holy One of God. And His holiness will always confront us. 
it will confront everything about us that is unholy. It will expose us, our worldliness, the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, the pride of life. But we are made for this God. We are made to know him. We are made to worship him. We are made to become like him. And see, this is why the world simultaneously hates him and loves him. Why it worships him and yet wants to kill him. And we're really left with one question. What are you doing with Jesus? How are you responding to him? And this is why I love Peter's declaration. Jesus, where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. For you are the Holy One of God. That is a declaration by someone who is all in. Yes, Peter makes mistakes. Yes, Peter has his doubts. Yes, Peter is in process. Yes, Peter at times is confused, even confused about Jesus. But he is all in. In this world, where the hate is growing more and more towards Jesus, can you say what Peter said? Where should we go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. And even just words out of your mouth, does your life scream that you're all in? The song I sung growing up, Though None Go With Me, Still I will follow. God, do that work in our hearts. God, may we be a people who are all in. In a world that hates you, in a world that everything it's about is against you, Though none go with me, still I will follow. In Jesus' name.